Today's podcast is brought to you by Harry's for a better way to shave. Please visit harrys.com and use the promo code PRIMAL to save $5 off your first purchase. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder, Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Damage Control, Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, anti-aging supplement. Available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, Brad Kearns. Hey listeners, Brad Kearns here, catching up with Dr. Doug McGuff, the co-author of The Primal Prescription. How you doing, Doug? I'm doing great. It's great to be here, Brett. Uh, thanks for taking the time to spend with us. I know you're a busy guy, and um, the first thing that we wonder is, how can you be that super busy ER physician and then crank out a book like in your spare time? Uh, I guess the honest answer was that it was agony. Um, <laughs> Uh, for the period of time that I wrote it, I guess it took place over a little less than a year. My contribution to it was literally done a paragraph, sometimes just a few sentences at a time. Um, the longer stretches, I would wake up really, really early in the morning and try to get a couple of hours in before everyone woke up, uh, but kind of jammed it all into this rotating schedule. And by the time I was done with it and submitted a manuscript, to, to you guys, I kind of felt like um, I, I'd been the Unabomber holed up in my cabin writing my manifesto, and I, I'm, I'm just amazed at how you guys were able to make it turn out. Uh, well, we unfortunately took a long time to get our act together, too, and to put the pieces together and get Bob Murphy involved to have this extremely unique two-part book where uh, listeners can go and listen to my podcast with Bob Murphy where he covered the uh, the economics of the U.S. healthcare and insurance system, and just giving the uh, the reader, the listener, kind of the overview of how wacky things are. Um, but then, kind of the enlightening, empowering part of the book, you you get through this material. It's a little bit somber. Um, it's sort of doesn't doesn't present a promising future. But then your section, which is titled "Save Yourself." Um, has a lot of good practical tips and insights to uh, stay away from what you call uh, the belly of the beast. Yeah. Um, well, I appreciate your comments, and I really appreciate being able to work with uh, Bob Murphy because he is an absolutely brilliant economist, and what he brought to the book was invaluable. Um, and to you guys for editing the um, Madman Manifesto that I sent you guys, um, in, into what it turned out to be. But to answer your question, I really wanted the book to be empowering um, because, you know, the way medicine has always been and the way that it has trended over the years has very much not been um, to my liking and it's made the practice of medicine very difficult. But, you know, Dolly Parton once said, you cannot change the direction of the wind, but you can adjust the sails. And what I wanted to do with the book is show the reader how to adjust the sales. Um, because I know what checkmate looks like. 
And as far as the medical economic landscape, we are at checkmate and there's not a lot you can do about it except to be able to have some insight from someone on the inside to say, here's how to get the most out of it. Because there are elements and components of our medical care system that are just absolutely astounding. And you need to be able to try to get the best out of the system while avoiding the worst that the system has to offer because of all the economic distortions that have occurred over the years. And, and that's what I really wanted to achieve in the book. And I hope that came through. Oh, that's great. And I think it paints this bigger picture of um, when you uh, think and act like a victim, you have a good chance of being a victim and telling a sad story and everyone can commiserate with you. Um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. And, you know, we can look at uh, the positive aspects of medicine and, like you say, um, you know, create the best experience for yourself possible, which starts with um, living a healthy, balanced lifestyle, eating the right foods, making good decisions, and uh, trying to stay away from even needing things like pharmaceuticals or medical care. So we have a bit of that commentary from you in the book because you're a healthy, fit guy. You're a big proponent of strength training and um, preserving the vitality that a lot of people just allow to decline when they age. But then if, then we get into the ifs, like uh, what about navigating your way through the, the hospital maze and choosing the right doctor and interesting topics like that? Yeah. And, um, you know, that's the real key. Medicine does have a lot to offer, but, you know, the thing that is most empowering in Mark's book, The Primal Blueprint, is it shows you and it demonstrates to you that the human animal, its natural default position, its genetic encoding and your birthright is to be robust and healthy. And the interventions that you got to take to enact that are very straightforward and simple. And just carrying out, you know, Mark's kind of primal blueprint laws in your own life will do almost everything that you can possibly do to never have to be pulled in to the belly of the beast, so to speak. Um, but even despite that, you know, things happen, random things happen. Uh, illnesses that you wouldn't expect, you know, you come down with a carcinoma, you can have very strange and weird things happen to you, traumatic things happen to you, infectious disease that will pull you into the system. And the thing about the system is, I liken it somewhat to the public school experience. Inside public schools, you will find some of the best and most dedicated teachers you can ever imagine. But they're working within the context and the confines of such a distorted and disempowering system that there's a lot of dissatisfaction with education, yet within it are contained great educators. The same thing is true in medicine. The docs that I see and that I practice with nowadays are just astounding how smart and how good and how well-read they are and what a grasp they have of the scientific literature. But the end user of their services many times ends up incredibly dissatisfied with their experience because of the way that they're forced to engage with them. And I thought if I could show people a way of experiencing all that modern medicine has to offer 
and trying to subvert the the really Byzantine system as it currently exists to get the best experience out of it, then should you ever have to need the system, you could use it in a way that was very beneficial to you. Um, one of the important things you emphasize is to choose uh, your your go-to doctor, I would, I guess, a, a family doctor or first point of contact doctor that can help you navigate all sorts of things if you do get the need for more intensive medical care. Can you talk about how important that, uh, that initial doctor-advocate relationship is? First, let me express that from the standpoint of an emergency physician. Um, I see in my practice everything from the most destitute of individuals living living in homeless situations all the way up to, you know, very wealthy CEO types. Um, But very commonly, I encounter people that are doing very well financially, but that don't have a physician, don't have a primary care provider because they're currently healthy and don't perceive the need to have one or navigating their way through the human resources department of their company through their insurance to find a physician to take care of them is such a complex and time-consuming task they never bothered to do it. So all of a sudden you land in the ER and you need someone to take care of you. You need, you know, there's the question, who is your family doctor? And well, I don't have one. And when you're in that position, that can put you at a pretty significant disadvantage. And I wanted to get across to the reader that, you know, having a physician, having a personal physician is sort of a corollary, like having a gun or a tourniquet. You may never need them, but when you need one of those items, you'll need it really badly and you need it right then. (laughs) Um, And that's the way I want someone to think about why I should have a physician. Um, Because you want someone that's plugged into the system where you're going to get pulled into because you're going to need help navigating the system. And I want to get the reader to think of their physician not as a Marcus Weldy authority type figure, but instead think of your medical adventure as an expedition, your medical version of climbing Everest. And I want you to think of the physician you select as your Sherpa, and the Sherpa is the native to the area that's uh, well acclimatized to the altitude and the environment and can get you there. But you hire the Sherpa and the Sherpa is subservient to you. You're the boss, but you're not exactly in charge because the Sherpa has more knowledge and authority in the environment than you do. But there is that appropriate relationship and tension between those two entities that allows you to navigate this dangerous environment most effectively. And that's how I want the reader to go after selecting their own personal physician. Uh, What kind of flexibility does the average person have to go down the line and have an assortment of candidates? I mean, is there a way to, um, I don't know, interview someone or um, it's, it's sort of stepping out of the normal realm, it seems like. As time goes by, that gets to be less and less, and it depends on your own um, circumstance, level of wealth, personal resources. Now we are fully into the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, and almost everyone, either through their employer or on their own, kind of has to go through the exchange system. And the Affordable Care Act 
has narrowed the network of coverage in any geographic region to a tighter and tighter um, radius. So that does make it more challenging. But in the process of promising the moon and the stars and providing coverage to everyone, that's inflated the premiums to such a high degree and the co-pays to such a level that it now is almost more economical to engage physicians that participate in a cash-only practice. Um, and that can be on a primary care level. And it sounds like something that only the wealthy can afford, a concierge medical practice or a cash-only practice. But there are cash-only physicians that find once they have all the regulatory burden of third-party payment taken off of them and all the, the um, complexity of complying with CMS, Center for Medicare Services, um, difficulties removed from them, that they can run an office practice at a very low overhead cost so that you have you can go see your primary care doctor an office visit for you know thirty-five to fifty dollars, which will end up being a lot less than a copay for the coverage that most employers are providing for their employees. So to some extent, I would say search out a simple care or cash-only type practice um, to have as your primary care provider. Now, if you have to get pulled into the hospital for more expensive care, they may or may not be able to care for you within the hospital, but they can certainly guide you through the process and help navigate your movement through the hospital with the physicians that are providing care there. Um, so I'd say seek out a family doctor. If you can find someone in your insurance network that is covered, I would just go from one to the other of the available ones that you can interview and find someone that you seem to get along with and meet your criteria. And yes, um, even though it doesn't feel like you have this power, um, I would interview your prospective physicians and figure out which one you'd like to have. Interesting. Uh, I suppose that some offices or individuals would be too busy or inaccessible, and those are ones that you could probably check off the list as you went down. And uh, I don't know if uh, a lot of people have experienced what I have, but now um, everything's online, and I can actually communicate with the various offices with email, and if they uh, deliver timely, thoughtful responses to my questions... Um, you know, they get a they get a star in my book as opposed to someone who's more difficult to communicate with. Yeah, and I think the fact that um, you know electronic media are leveling that playing field to a good extent, where you actually can uh, vet your um, prospective providers and physicians much more quickly and effectively that way. And I I would judge that ease of engagement as as a major criteria for who you select. Uh, and even if you're, uh, let's say we have a, a healthy listening audience in general, the Primal Blueprint podcast, yeah. um, let's say you're totally healthy and you hit up a doc saying, hey, I got no uh, urgent complaint right now, but I'm interested in forming a, a long-term relationship where um, we can have the checkups or the consultations and see if they're like-minded. Seems like a really good strategy. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and that's a little bit of a double-edged sword because... <laughs> Being able to have brought into your practice as a primary care physician, someone that's healthy and has no problems, under the current structure 
of how primary care medicine is being funded, that's very attractive to them because that helps their statistics um, in terms of, you know, Medicare and the third party payers are now leaning towards a this huge pay for performance category, which weights itself towards if you have healthy patients without problems, it makes you look better on paper in terms of your stats. But the flip side of that coin is you also want a physician that is able and willing to take care of you should you get really sick. And that's important because there's the practice of medicine in terms of taking care of sick and injured people is now, for lack of a better word, brutal (laughs) um, to a practicing physician. It's just absolutely brutal in this environment. Because the sick in our society are sick beyond imagination. And managing their illnesses is overwhelming. And everything about our contemporary society, medical practice, the pharmaceutical industry, um, the food and drug industry in general, has fostered a sense of dependence and helplessness that makes it very difficult to manage these kind of patients. So there is a strong incentive for physicians to move out of primary care and try to go into these boutique practices that focus on wellness, hormonal optimization, integrative medicine, things of that nature, which I think are all great things. It's it's market forces that are somewhat distorted that are creating this move But I think these are all viable and good ways of practicing medicine. But to choose one of those doctors as your primary care physician, if they don't also practice taking care of sick and injured people, is not really establishing the kind of physician I'm talking about. I think you really need to make certain that the person you pick is going to be available to help guide you through the process should something happen to you. As opposed to finding someone who's like, you know, this is just too damn hard to hell with this. I'm going out and doing, you know, a wellness practice of some sort. And that's the type of physician that most of the people I know, our listeners um, on this podcast are going to be drawn to. But I would say, if you are, make sure that they are also still practicing clinical medicine, taking care of sick people, um, and either seeing people in the hospital or at least helping to navigate them through the process of hospitalization, illness, finding specialists when they're needed, and uh, and that sort of thing. Because what we really want to establish is that you are getting someone to take care of you when the unexpected happens. Right. And so when that does happen and you have a strong relationship with a general practice doc that's seen you for a period of years and knows all your blood work and your tendencies and all of a sudden you're a patient, Um, Is it the dynamic where you can bounce things off of this uh, caretaker and they have that special knowledge of your background and can help you navigate sometimes the uncertainty or the important decisions that you have to make? Uh, I think it's just that you've established a relationship. I don't think knowing your blood work or your background, if you're healthy, has anything to contribute at all. And that's just my personal opinion. I'm sure there are primary care physicians that would state otherwise, and I don't practice primary care. But I think when you're healthy, you're healthy. And, you know, knowing what your blood work was when you were healthy is not going to help the situation at all. But you're going to establish a relationship 
with someone that all of a sudden you're in the ER one night and they're going to say, who's your primary care doc? And if you have someone, you have a relationship that you can call, you know, they can help tell you what to expect. They can help expedite your movement through the system. They can communicate with the hospitalists that are providing inpatient care for you. You may desire an extent of treatment that is not in line with the current third-party payment mandated treatment protocols. And, you know, that may require someone with some influence over the process to make sure that how you want things to go is actually carried out. Um, because like we had talked about before the podcast started, if you ever do get pulled into the system, it is a bit of a roller coaster ride. You crest the top and you start plummeting down and a lot of stuff happens without you really even having a full understanding of what's going on. <laughs> yeah. So how advocate that you've kind of talked to about what, you know, your philosophy is with regard to healthcare interventions, pharmaceuticals, someone that knows the kind of person you are that's available to kind of help you navigate this complex system is where the real value in having that relationship comes from. Right, right. I think what you were talking about when you said before the podcast was uh, my medical ordeals this summer where I had emergency appendectomy and then I had some complications after um, with my kidney function and having assorted different procedures, but um, I was falling into the belly of the beast around the same time I was narrating the book and reading these chapters. But, you know, once you're in there and you have this procedure and they don't find anything or they do find something, then you're taking, you know, steps further and further down this hallway. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of nuance and uncertainty, I discovered, uh, where you need to have an advocate to um, make a decision where if, if you don't behave that way, a whole bunch of decisions seemingly are going to be made for you. Yeah, it really feels that way. And part of it is it's not a deliberate or a conspiratorial thing within medicine, but medicine has become very, very specialized. And what happens is you can be like a pinball that's shot up into the machine. And, you know, it takes incredible specialization to be able to catheterize a coronary artery, to do ureteroscopy or whatever procedure you may need along the way. So what can happen is you sort of bounce to one specialist to another and each has a very narrow silo that they operate within. And you can kind of bounce from one text to the next without any real feedback from each different specialist doing those tests as to what this means and where it's all going. And a generalist that's able to receive all those reports and synthesize them and tell you, okay, here's what I think this all means, and this is where it's headed, and this is what I think the game plan should be is significantly different than one specialist doing a procedure and it has this outcome, which then triggers another test, which has an outcome. And then all of a sudden you're the hot potato in this specialist stand and he thinks, well, now I think you need endoscopy. And then you end up with the endoscopist and they're like, eh, well, I don't know, maybe you need to see a surgeon and then you're bounced to them. And there's no one integrating the results of each of these individual tests as you bounce from specialist to specialist. And it doesn't take but two or three encounters like that before you feel utterly and completely lost and like no one's talking to each other. And that's where having your Sherpa um, can kind of help you link all this together in a way that's going to make sense. And also, 
help you decide when to say no to a test because tests, like we discussed in the book, don't just answer yes or no questions. And tests are not either correct or incorrect. Whether or not to even do a test has a lot to do with what your pretest probability of having the disease in question is. Mm. So you don't want to just go do a test that the test is going to give you an answer because how well that test works is very context dependent. And that context is the likelihood that you have the disease or not. And if that likelihood is really kind of low, you shouldn't do the test at all. Because if you get a positive, the odds are much, much greater it's going to be a false positive. Stated in the most extreme way, if I give a pregnancy test to a man and it comes back positive, you can be 100% certain that it's a false positive. Tests don't just answer yes or no. Their sensitivity, their specificity is contextual. And if you do a test under the wrong circumstance, you may get an answer that has no connection to reality whatsoever. So you need someone to kind of say, do you even need to do a test before you embark upon it? Well, that was going to be one of my topics to bring up. Very interesting because there's a section in the book about um, elective procedures and getting a little deeper instead of just assuming. Um, I remember, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm turned 50 this year. And I got some calls and reminders saying, it's time for your colonoscopy. And I'm like, well, maybe it's not time because I'm looking at all the risk factors, symptoms, and you actually uh, hit that uh, particular test with some detail in your book saying that um, sometimes the complications from that procedure um, are not worth the risk. I mean, I don't know if you said it was one in a hundred, but you know, there's some bad stuff that can happen with a routine screening when the routine screening is just thrown out there to the the planet at large that a male when they turn 50 should get one but um, maybe it's better to reflect a little further on some of these templates yeah um part of the problem with doing tests particularly screening tests is the concept of screening can set up a scenario where there is much greater likelihood that a positive is going to be a false positive and false positive medical tests have significant morbidity and rarely mortality associated with them. And whether or not you're going to get a false positive on a test depends on your pretest probability of having the disease in question. Now, 50 is chosen as a threshold for colonoscopy because as you get older and further along in life, your likelihood of having a precancerous lesion or, or colon cancer goes up over time. So that's chosen as an arbitrary threshold. But there's significant controversy about whether age alone is enough of a pretest probability to make the risk of doing the test worthwhile. And I think it very much depends on who you are. If you have a strong family history of colon cancer, if you have eaten poorly throughout your life, if you're obese, if you have other medical issues, if you've developed the metabolic syndrome or non-insulin dependent diabetes, you don't exercise and you're 50, yeah, it's probably time. Um, if you are someone that has followed a healthy and natural diet their whole life, exercises regularly, have an ideal body composition and have been otherwise healthy and you have no symptoms, you've never seen blood and you've never tested hemocult positive when you visit a doctor or anything, 
then your pretest probability may be low enough that it's not worth the risk of undergoing the test. And even if you come through the test with no complications, you may scare the crap out of yourself with a false positive. Mm. And this is true of any type of screening test, whether that be colonoscopy, PSA screening for prostate cancer, mammography for breast cancer. What ends up happening is we have this notion in our head that screening is good and that early detection catches cancer before it's cancer and saves lives. But the literature on this, without getting into deep, deep specifics, is a large amount of the time, the, the literature doesn't really support that notion, that early detection has not really decreased the incidence of cancer or the mortality from cancer over the years. But this becomes a meme, and there are these huge public service campaigns to raise awareness about breast cancer and screening and prostate cancer and screening and colon cancer and screening. And what you're doing is as those public service campaigns take effect, you end up getting a larger cohort of people to undergo screening. So what you now have is the test hasn't changed, but now you have a population that has a lower pretest probability of disease. And when you do that, you increase the likelihood of false positives. And these false positives are not just a benign thing. I mean, if you have a false positive mammography, which most positive mammographies turn out to be, you can ask any woman, that has a huge frightening and negative psychological impact on them. And then it can result in additional testing. It can result in a secondary false positive that results in surgery that can go anywhere from a lumpectomy to a bilateral radical mastectomy. And it could be all predicated on someone being pulled in with too low of a pretest probability and then having some successive false positives and getting pulled down this pathway that they never needed to go. So, you know, there has to be some sophistication to your decisions to engage the medical system and to undergo testing. Uh, that's a little disturbing, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> Life is not simple. And I tell you what, medicine especially is not simple. And that's also why you would like to have a primary care physician that kind of understands these concepts and uh, understands how to apply testing with wisdom. And it, I got to tell you, that's hard to come by because physicians are under immense pressure to do things that the literature may not necessarily support. And that's, you know, whether it's to put asymptomatic people of a certain age on statins or borderline hypertensives on blood pressure medicine. These are hugely controversial areas, but, you know, reimbursement for your services through third-party payers gets predicated on these performance measures, which they take as indirect markers of a conservative and conscientious physician and if you don't follow lockstep with these protocols, you can get punished for it. And, you know, when you really take an intelligent and deep look at the issue, it's a very individualized decision for each patient, but that's getting applied on a population basis and it's getting reimbursed that way. So there's huge incentives to not think that way. So you, you really got to establish a relationship with a physician. You, know, you, you want to really delve into whether you should or shouldn't do things along the way. Hi, listeners. It's Brad Kearns here to talk to you about one of my favorite subjects in the world, shaving. 
<laughs> okay, maybe it's just an ordinary subject, but when you get serious about your shaving and go to harrys.com for the very finest quality blades you can buy in the world at an affordable price and not have to bother with hassling at the store for those extremely overpriced and inferior quality blades from the name brands. That's right, harrys.com is a direct order shaving blade and accessories company where you can get the finest quality blades in the world direct from their factory in Germany at a fraction of the price of the outrageous prices that they charge, even in the big box stores, for those name brand blades which are inferior quality. I have to admit, I never really paid much attention to the quality of my shave, and I don't even shave unless I have to leave my house and go see people, which is rare occasions. But I have to say, when I started using Harry's products, there's a discernible improvement in the closeness of the shave, the comfort, the lack of itchiness afterwards, and also chicks dig it. I mean, I have received lengthier and more frequent gazes everywhere I go after shaving with Harry's products, and you will too. Well, maybe results will vary, but you might as well try it because their starter kit is only $15. And when you use our code PRIMAL, you get an additional $5 off. So you can get started with high quality shaving, see how it works for you for only 10 bucks. And then get on the program. You can reorder automatically. Shipping is always free. And you'll always have those clean, top quality blades from harrys.com. Well, I think particularly when it comes to the dispensation of pharmaceuticals, which we haven't even talked about much, but it was a very interesting part of the book where you had uh, the number needed to treat for benefit and the number needed to treat for harm. Maybe you can just give a quick overview of those concepts and how the system of prescription drugs is uh, kind of doing this blanket approach. Yeah, it's a little bit of a complicated topic, but I guess the easiest way to describe it is First, the listener has to understand that medicines don't just treat a single disease and they're not targeted at a single disease and that's all they do. We've all heard the term side effects and we've all heard the term therapeutic effects. But what you really have to understand is when you make a drug formulation, it does not have a single effect in the body. If it is a pharmacologically active substance, it's going to have multiple effects throughout your body. And if you have a disease state and that drug acts upon the disease state, that is the drug's therapeutic effect. But all the other effects that come along for the ride are still there. And in this context, we call that effect a side effect, okay? So if you're gonna take a drug, you wanna make sure that you're taking a drug that one of its effects is to treat a disease state that you in fact have. And you wanna make sure that you have that disease state to a significant effect. That way, when you take a drug that has all these seven different effects, let's say, one of which is the therapeutic effect for the disease which you have, that the benefit of that therapeutic effect more than offsets the other six effects, which we are gonna call a side effect, okay? The problem is once a drug makes it through the approval process, the FDA says, yep, here it is. And the pharmaceutical company then tries to recoup all of its money for research and development and through this incredibly onerous process of getting approved through the FDA. Then comes this big marketing campaign. Ask your doctor if blah, blah, blah is right for you. Well, all of a sudden through this big marketing campaign, you've cast a wider net and you now have more people that are being pulled in to take this drug. So 
So now you're going to have more patients that have a less severe form of this disease in question, or maybe don't even have it at all, but think they do. So now the therapeutic effect is treating something that's very, very minor, and it does not offset the other six effects, which are considered side effects. So medicines don't just have a single effect, and their side effects are always proportionate to their therapeutic effect. Mm. So you want to make sure that if you're taking a drug for a therapeutic effect, that you really do have the disease in question and that it is really significant. So let me explain that by turning this on its head. Originally, researchers were trying to find a medicine that dilated blood vessels to treat high blood pressure. And they found it worked fairly well for lowering blood pressure. But they found that it had one of its side effects was it gave men a really raging erection. And then all of a sudden they made this realization that, hey, maybe we can make a lot more money with this drug by using it for this side effect. So now this drug that was originally designed to be a blood pressure medicine to lower blood pressure that had the side effect of producing an erection is now a drug that's prescribed for erectile dysfunction, but carries the warning be careful, you can get lightheaded, you can get faint, and if you take nitrates, don't take this drug in combination with it or else your blood pressure will bottom out to nothing. So you can see that a drug originally made to be an antihypertensive now becomes a drug for erectile dysfunction because drugs don't have a single effect. They all have a bunch of effects, one of which, if you have a disease, is the therapeutic effect. Here's the other thing. Let's say you decide that, yeah, I I like this system, dude, and I like everything he has to say, and I'm going to undertake these 10 primal blueprint laws, and you really go for it, and you start getting healthier, and your high blood pressure starts to get better, and your type 2 diabetes starts to get better. Well, you're taking a medicine for your blood pressure, and you're taking a medicine for your blood sugar. As your disease state gets less severe, your therapeutic effect from those two medicines starting to become your side effect. Oh. Blood pressure's getting better. All of a sudden, you're getting lightheaded and dizzy because your blood pressure is now dropping too low on the medication. And then you keep having these spells where you get really shaky and sweaty because guess what? On your blood sugar medicine, you're now becoming hypoglycemic because your disease state is becoming less severe and your need for the medication is becoming less. So all medications have side effects and their side effects are proportionate to their therapeutic effects and whether it's going to benefit you or not is completely contingent upon whether you really have the disease and that you have it to a significant extent. That makes sense? Nice. Yeah. And I think the, uh, the end user has to take some responsibility here because I don't think we consider the, the big picture enough. We, we take pain meds because we're in pain and it works and that's kind of the end of the story. Um, instead of reflecting on, is this going to prolong my condition or interfere with my eventual healing or, you know, decisions like that. So it's kind of like, um, don't take drugs if you really need it would be the, the summary here, huh? That, yeah. Unless you really need it. Realize that when you take drugs, that whatever receptor this drug is acting on, there's not just one receptor for one thing. So if you're taking a medicine that dilates your blood vessels by blocking receptors on the wall of the blood vessels, you also have to know you have those receptors elsewhere in your body. Um, You have them in the blood vessels leading into your reproductive organs. It can cause erectile dysfunction. 
you have these receptors in the lining of um, your bronchial tubes in your lungs, and they can constrict and give you asthma-like symptoms. So, you know, you're targeting one specific thing, but there's receptors all over your body that are also going to respond to this medication and produce effects that are far removed from what you're trying to target. You take an aspirin for your headache, you got to realize that, you know, a cyclooxygenase inhibitor is also going to inhibit production of productive mucus on the lining of your stomach, and you're going to get gastritis or potentially an ulcer. It's completely unrelated to the body system that you were targeting. Right. That's a good uh, wrap-up for the uh, the pharmaceutical uh, perspective. And sure. I wonder, Doug, if we can end up uh, having a little fun here with your 12 ways to avoid the black swan, which was... Uh, I guess, a message inspired by your many years of being on the front line in, in the emergency room and seeing the reasons, uh, a lot of them stupid mistakes, that people present there. And so you came up with these 12 ways to avoid the black swan. Um, unfortunately, I guess it didn't make it into the book, but I thought it was just a, a brilliant insight. And um, I think about these things all the time. I hope you have them written down because I don't have them memorized. Oh, I got them, man. I, I spread these around to everybody who will who will and listen. And really were just for fun. But the, the point of the <laughs> three dozen, as I call them, is to make people realize that, you know, what they perceive to be as black swan events, these things that come out of the blue and injure them and lay them up in the hospital and just completely complicate their lives are really not as unpredictable as they think they are because <laughs> they are recurring themes to anyone that's an emergency physician. And there are certain phrases that um, always are kind of little warning or indicator lights for something something bad's about to happen. And, you know, one of them is, here, hold my drink. Is, uh, <laughs> it's usually a bad one. Or ding, 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 ding. Or, hey, watch this, is uh, usually followed by something that leads to me. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just let you lead me through them and I'll tell it. I can talk about them a little bit. Yeah, here we go. Um, the first one is drive the biggest vehicle you can afford to drive. Okay. So that's pretty simple that, and I got to say this, um, you know, I don't want anyone to get mad at me about this recommendation. I got to say, I watched a video the other night of a smart car running into a cement wall at 100 miles per hour. I didn't know they could go that fast. Or maybe the accelerator, you know, the, the slide that it was on just brought it up that fast. But the passenger compartment remained completely intact. I was flabbergasted. Wow. So what I can say is not, not only the biggest car you can find, but the most up-to-date car you can find. I, I can tell you that back when I first started practicing emergency medicine, if we got a call going out for the ambulance to go out to an auto accident. We would close off the trauma room. We would put a hold on the waiting room for bringing patients back. We would call down the cavalry and we would be at the ready because it was going to be bad. And now we hear the ambulance tone out for a car wreck and we yawn because the engineering that's gone into cars in terms of crumple zones, airbags, safety features is such a major advancement now. Uh, the engineering that's gone into that has saved more lives than, than I ever have. Um, but all things being equal, force is mass times acceleration. And the one component that you can make predictable in that scenario is the mass. So if you're in the bigger vehicle, all of the things being equal, 
um, you will probably come out better. Uh, you also wrote in your message, hey, if your midlife crisis plans include a motorcycle or sports car, realize that you might resolve your midlife crisis by avoiding old age altogether. And oh, never text while driving because texting and driving increases your risk of a traffic fatality by a factor of 23. Yeah. And those, right. both those things are true. And I cannot tell you the number of guys my age I have seen taken off the planet by their midlife crisis. Uh, it's truly astounding. Uh, the next one is never get on a four-wheeler or an ATV. Yeah. That's, those things are designed to um, kill and maim, and they have produced more quadriplegics than I can remember. Um, they're inherently unstable. They flip over easily, and they handle in such a way that it makes the operator overconfident in their abilities. Ooh, that's a nice one. And it has a drink holder right in the front, too. Yeah. Uh, number three is uh, hits one close to home for us in the endurance scene is um, don't ride your bicycle on public roads. Yeah, I hate to say that. And I was a, um, you know, in my youth and again in my older age i was a, a bmx racer but during late high school and um, through most of college i also participated in road cycling on a competitive basis and had a few close calls but um in the united states in particular the awareness of cyclists is close to zero there is hostility toward them and now with people texting and driving at the same time the number of people that I am aware of, both from a, you know, practicing in emergency medicine and just through hearsay uh, that have been killed in that circumstance is just, the statistics are just disproportionately bad for it. So uh, I wish there were designated places to road, road cycle safely, but I think it's, it's just bad. I wouldn't run on the side of the road either. Yeah, I mean, this topic is particularly interesting to me because I'm in the uh, reflective mode having finished many, many years of riding. I mean, I charted my mileage when I was competing as a triathlete, and um, I've ridden over 100,000 miles on the road, and I'm, I'm still here to talk about it. But the reflection is that if you're going to be out there over and over and over and calling yourself a safe rider and choosing the right roads and having your bike lamp and all those things are fine, but you're talking about... Um, the odds uh, increasing of some serious misfortune the more you're out there, no matter what, no matter all other things being equal and the safest roads possible. And when you put that into the mix of all the other dangerous things you do in life, um, yeah. it's difficult to justify you know, getting out there and pedaling because your, your odds are you're going to have... I mean, every cyclist knows that um, they're going to crash and they do crash and have minor to serious injuries, but, you know, the fatality is always hanging in the back there. And when you roll out of your driveway and say goodbye to your family and um, you have all these other things where the world's counting on you to come back safely, um, it just doesn't, it just doesn't weigh out well. Yeah. And, and the hard part of that equation is that it's not your fault. Um, that as an emergency physician, I can tell you, it's really disturbing to me and the general public doesn't realize there are way more impaired drivers out there than you would ever realize. And they are impaired by alcohol. They're impaired by drugs or narcotics. They're impaired by sleep deprivation. They're impaired by their physical conditioning. I mean, you know, you can have someone that 
has metabolic syndrome and is obese, and they are going to be prone to hypoglycemia. They may be prone to microsleeping because they have obstructive sleep apnea. The number of drivers out there that are impaired combined with our culture of convenience where there's, you know, cup holders, radios, GPS, and um, movie know, screens, smartphones <laughs> inside the car to be distracted with is just, you know, it's a bad combination. Okay, so we have uh, drive a big car, don't drive the ATVs, uh, stay off the public roads on your bicycle. And number four is don't fly an airplane or helicopter unless you're a professional pilot. So heads up to the, uh, you know, well-to-do business professionals looking for a hobby and have the means and resources to go get trained. Don't do it. Yeah, it's kind of like the number one killer of well-to-do physicians, lawyers, and sports figures. So <laughs> that's that's less predicated on true experience and more on opinion. But uh, I think if you're going to do something like that, you really need to log the number of hours to be expert at it because the consequences of not um, are pretty all or nothing. Yeah, sometimes um, the pilot error is involved and it seems to me a lot of it's the decision to take off in the first place because whenever I read about these small plane accidents, it's commonly associated with a stormy time or the fog or some type of weather thing where um, I guess they were desperate to, to get where they were going, but if it's a, a true hobby activity, maybe you could, um, if you insist on doing it, do it on sunny days only or some type of edict like that. Yeah, and I, I think that has a lot to do with it. And, you know, particularly commercial flight is the safest form of travel. And I've heard it said by experts in medical error that the reason airline travel is so safe relative to medicine is that um, if the plane goes down, the pilot's ass hits the ground first. So there's a, a degree of self-interest there. So, But yeah, that's, that's more one of personal opinion than personal experience. And maybe this one's hopefully just your personal opinion and not personal experience. Number five, if you're walking down a sidewalk and are approaching a group of loud and apparently intoxicated males, cross to the other side of the street immediately. If anyone tries to start a fight with you, your first step should be to choke them with heel dust. Run away. Um, that's something that I can, not from personal experience, although, although I have had personal experience of trying to avoid confrontations or altercations, but have seen plenty of people that failed to do so and, and the consequences of it can be really bad or fatal. Um, the, the idea being is that self-defense is an important thing. Everyone has the right to defend themselves. But given the choice and the opportunity, if you can avoid it altogether, um, even if that results in losing face to some degree, um, I think that is a much better route to take is avoidance. I dig that. I mean, uh, one form of self-defense is to have some cash and offer it up to someone that uh, is offended by you and leave. <laughs> yeah. Okay, number six. If your gas grill won't start, walk away. Never throw <laughs> gas or other accelerant on a fire. Yeah, that's a big one. That's an emergency medicine. And I can tell you that the not walking away from the gas grill, I have done myself. I've had the the flames shoot out the side ports of the grill and uh, 
you just got to keep striking that match because it won't light. Meanwhile, you're building up all the gas underneath there. But um, yeah, that's that's a predominantly um, testosterone based. <laughs> I can fix it. And testosterone mis- mixed with ethanol tends to produce those kind of behaviors uh, at a disproportionate rate. So throwing accelerants on the fire, throwing gasoline on your bonfire and that sort of stuff has resulted in a lot of helicopter flights to the burn center. Oh, boy. Uh, the next one, number seven, never dive into a pool or body of water. Yeah. Go feet first. Always check it out, feet first. Yeah, I mean, people that are diving into, you know, a lake or a pool or thinking that they have adequate depth. I mean, it's hit your head, break your neck. Um, that's just a recurring thing. You know, and, and these are things that I teach my kids. It's like, I don't care where you are. I don't care what it says. You always go in feet first and check it out. You know, you never know if someone's thrown something underneath the surface that you don't know is there, an old tree stump, who knows what. Right. Uh, number eight, never get on a ladder to clean your gutters or on your roof to hang Christmas lights. Do not cut trees down with a chainsaw. I've seen many middle-aged males with an eagerness to get something done die from these activities. In general, any house or lawn work that you can hire for an amount equal to or less than your own hourly wage is money well spent. I almost cannot elaborate on that any better than what you just read, except to say a lot of the dirty dozen is things that have made an impression on me, but never have really presented with too high of a frequency. This isn't one of those. (laughs) This presents with such a high frequency that it is really a black swan that isn't. I mean, the number, and, and this is a particularly male tendency, although women do it, they always do it indoors. It's always a cleaning thing or a hanging curtains thing. They'll put a chair on top of a table to get to a light fixture to clean it and fall. But men, it's always ladders, getting on a gutter, getting on the roof to hang the Christmas lights, cutting branches off the tree, and then falling. Um, and I mean, every week there's at least one. Wow. It, it is just over and over and over again. So just, yeah, stay off the ladder. Yeah. Like I said, these things, uh, I think about them a lot. And I know back in our history here, it's like, when do we care about our rain gutters? When there's a rainstorm and they're overflowing. Otherwise, we're not paying attention. And so then, you know, you're getting out on a wet ladder. It just doesn't add up to anything good. Uh, number nine, an interesting one, uh, stay put if you're a retiree because of the stress of moving to a new home pushes many seniors over the edge. Yeah, and I don't know if this is a selection bias on my part. I have to be very honest about that. But where I practice is in an area, we live on a really, around a really beautiful lake, and we're in a lake and mountain region here, and it has a fairly large retirement population. A lot of people come here to build their dream home or their retirement home. And it just seems, and that's, again, I say this might just be completely a selection bias because of where I live and the age of the people that are around here. But I started to see this pattern of people coming in, having acute heart attacks. And while I'm getting them all packaged up to go to the catheterization lab and everything, they're always calling their wife on the cell phone because they're meeting some contractor. The number of times that I've seen people having heart attacks that are in the middle of a home building project just seems 
disproportionately high to me. And there's no science to that at all. It's completely my observation, and it may be just a selection bias of um, where I practice. But it's definitely a pattern that I've noticed and one that I believe in. Oh, I think it makes sense, Doug. I'm uh, My own parents have been pondering, uh, you know, moving out of the home that they've lived in for 50 years. And um, it's, you know, it's been a stressful time for them. They've changed their mind twice and finally decided, what the heck, we might as well just stay here. Yeah, yeah, it's a little too big for us now with the family gone, but um, the stress of planning and, and plotting and trying to find some place that's going to give you that same comfort that you've become used to because you've lived in one place for so long. Um, these things are, you know, they're relevant for sure. Yeah. I mean, the the home building, the house that I currently live in, we went through that process and I was maybe 33, 34 at the time. And, you know, it darn near killed us. And it was the closest we ever came to divorce, I think. So it's not a stress-free experience by any means. Uh, number 10, not the most pleasant thought, but I think important to, uh, uh, you know, understand this concept. If anyone tries to force you into a car or car trunk at gunpoint, do not cooperate. Fight and scream all you can, even if you risk getting shot right there in the parking lot, because if you get in the car, you will almost certainly die and undergo more suffering. Um, it's not that I've seen a lot of those cases. And I have a lot of interaction with law enforcement in the emergency department. So there's not a huge sample size to this, but the pattern is absolutely consistent. Um, once you're in, in that scenario, you have to have thought about this ahead of time and have your action plan thought out ahead of time. And my inclination is you, you don't get in a car under those circumstances ever. It will not turn out well at all. And if someone's going to, to take you out in that way, you have to force their hand to do it where they're going to be on a observation camera in the parking lot or something of that nature. Because uh, I think it's your only chance at that point. Makes sense. Okay, number 11. If you are in any personal or professional relationship that exhausts you or otherwise causes you recurrent distress, end the relationship immediately. Um, that is both, that's mostly observational in the emergency department. And, um, the listeners may not be aware, but any emergency physician can corroborate this. When your own mother won't anything to do with you, when you're too violent to police, the emergency department is a place of last resort for those kind of people. And I end up seeing a lot of those kind of people, and I see the people just take everyone down with them. And if you end up in any sort of scenario with that kind of person, you can't make it better. You can't fix them. You can't help them. The only thing you can do is extricate yourself from that situation. And it's true whether it's a friend, a family member. There are certain people that... The only answer is to get away from them. Uh, that yeah, and a lot of uh, a lot of suffering has gone on because of an unwillingness to do that. Yeah, I like it. I mean, that's there's an extreme example of some wacko person, but um, also those you know everyday relationships that just turn into too much drama for what the payoff is. I don't know if it, you could consider in the the workplace or just a, a neighbor or something where you have to you have to check yourself often and say, hey, what am I doing here? Why am I, you know, enabling this negativity uh, on my side? And um, it's okay to 
sever things that aren't paying off. So that brings us to number 12. Don't play the lottery because you might win. Yes. Any unearned wealth or wealth that is disproportionate to the objective value you provide will destroy you. That is a personal opinion. Um, And it's not predicated on anything that I've experienced in emergency medicine. But it comes out of my amateur reading of economics. And I really do think that money is a barometer of virtue in a good economic system. And that when you attain wealth through production, then that wealth, um, because it was obtained by by putting goodness out in the world and helping people in some sort of way, uh, can actually be enjoyed and um, actually increases productivity and happiness in the world. Whereas wealth that is unearned and undeserved brings misery. And, you know, you can just kind of Google stories of people that have won the lottery. And you can look at actors and athletes and famous people whose wealth has been disproportionate to their true contribution and see how it has destroyed their lives. And I think, you know, we just really need to be happy with our own lives. I remember, you know, when I was a kid, my parents' generation is like, if you were someone that worked and was self-supporting and supported your family, that was heroic. And I think we need to get back to that. Doug McGuff, I told you we were going to have some fun at the end with the 12 ways to avoid the black swan. Thank you for spending all the time to get into the important points of the primal prescription, a wonderful book. It's doing really well on Amazon. I highly recommend it. You can listen to the audio or or buy the book in digital or print form. And uh, how do we uh, keep in touch with you? Do you have a... um, a Twitter thing burning up, or what's your deal? Um, our connection to you is kind of breaking up. The question, probably the easiest way to engage me in the exercise realm where I'm active is through my website, which is drmcguff.com, G-R-M-C-G-U-F-S.com. Got it. And that links you up to everything that I'm currently active in. This is your host. Thanks for listening to the Primal Blueprint Podcast with Doug McGuff. I'll talk to you next time. ba da ba 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 ba